Good morning. Good morning. Preachers have a need to know, at least at the start of the sermon, that everyone is awake. Friends, would you bow your heads and let's be quiet for a moment. Still the noise, not only on the outside, but perhaps the only time this week on the inside. And right where you are, let's pray. Living God, open your word to our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, open our hearts to your life. And by your life, may we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen. If you've got the text, I think it'll be helpful because I want to take you through it a bit. This great phrase from the sixth chapter of the book of the prophet Micah. Now, Micah is in the 8th century BC. He's living in the midst of kings who are reprobates and those who are violent men at best. That would be a compliment. Ahaz, one of the kings of his day, believed in everything from oppression of the poor and disenfranchised to child sacrifice. He was, like so many, he worshipped many and a multitude of gods, but perhaps the most despicable was a god of the day, Molech, the great god of fire, where the only sacrifice that could appease his bloodlust, this god of Molech, would be fire, and fire of the child, burning a child to death. So these are not comfortable times. There is nothing Oprah-esque about this moment in the nation's history. The problem here is Micah is not speaking to the rest of the world. Micah is speaking to God's people, God's people Israel. He's got a word from the living God for them. And the challenging thing is it sounds strangely like the world, yet in fact it's God's people who have certainly lost their way. What is striking when you go back and you look at Micah, you find out that it is so contemporary. There's violence just all over that, that wealth and power is ensconced in the hands of a very few. And those who are poor in any way, a mind, body, spirit, or economy, have no hope and no chance. And in steps Micah to present a charge. Now, as you heard Karina say, years ago when I was single and much thinner and uh, in better shape, I was a firefighter and a paramedic. And one of the things that, that they have to do is that when you come across a crime scene that you're called to give testimony in court. And it's very serious, especially the first time I had to give testimony in a murder case. A young man had been horribly beaten and we were first on the scene. And so I had to go to court. And because they arrested another person, and he was subsequently charged with murder, a federal capital offense. It's interesting because first you meet with the Crown Attorney and you're prepped. Now that doesn't mean you're told what to say, you're simply told what not to say. Meaning that you don't offer your opinion, you don't give your experience, you don't try to oppress like you would see on Law and Order or great movies like To Kill a Mockingbird or A Few Good Men, but rather you say as a witness only what you know to be true yourself what you've seen, and what you know. You don't surmise, you don't wonder if, you simply say, here's what I saw, and here's what I did. And so, when you go to court, it is really quite something, and if you've never been to court, that's a good thing, try to stay away. <laughs> Not only because perhaps you're a Jesus follower, and that's a very good thing to do, but also because it is a different existence. A capital case in court, I cannot express how solemn and grave it really is. 
When you walk into that courtroom and you see lined up on one side is a jury box and you see the defense and the crown, and then you hear that the clerk stand and go, Oye, stand and rise for his or her honor in the name of the judge presiding, who sits visibly over the courtroom. And you know in that moment that it's serious. Crown witnesses are only called in when their witness is required. They don't sit through everything. They simply come in when they're called. And so you have in this very powerful moment, the indictment is laid, the defense is offered, the prosecution goes hard at the case, and then the judge or judge and jury decide on the verdict. Now, I'm setting that up because what we have in front of you, and I'm hoping, Colin, you can put it back up on the screen for us, from Micah chapter 6, you have a courtroom scene. And there's four parts to this passage, and we're going to get to the great word in Micah 6, 8. And the reason I'm coming about it this way is that, as I understand from Karina, you and your chapel times have been studying great words of the Bible. John 3, 16, and Genesis 6, 4, the Shema. The problem with great words of the scriptures is that they are so familiar, as the old saying goes, they breed contempt. And if not contempt, we dismiss them as, oh, we know that, and we've heard it. And one of the grave dangers for folks like me, those who profess to preach or teach, is that we start to think that we actually know and understand the Word of God. So here is Micah setting up a brilliant, well-known passage, Micah 6.8, but he does it in a very unique way. So it's broken up into four parts very quickly. The indictment of the Lord, the reality of God, the defense of the people of God, and then finally the verdict of the living God. So, the indictment. It's interesting, it's never stated clearly, as you can see in these first couple verses, but it is very clear who's bringing the charge. Here, and in the Hebrew, it's quite a striking word, here, like, sit down, be quiet, put a cork in it. I've got something to say to you. This is not your opportunity to chat or to offer anything, it's to be quiet and listen very carefully. And Micah says, here's what Yahweh says. And for anyone to stand and proclaim on behalf of Yahweh is taking their life in their hands. Arise, plead your case. And this is fascinating. If you can picture a jury box where you've got 12 seats and, you know, in our justice system, you are required or you have the opportunity to have a jury of your peers. Here, Israel has a jury of all creation. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. You see, God's not messing around. This is so serious. He is going right to the wall with the charge. And he's bringing all of creation to listen to the charge leveled against his people. Now, why is this important? You know, of course, from the story of Genesis, the first chapter, we see this incredible building story of creation culminating in the creation of all humanity who are given charge over creation to be stewards and responsible for and yet here in this courtroom drama unfolding, the charge is brought against God's people by creation itself. You can see that the indictment is shifting their reality. The Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. These are his people. This isn't just some wayward group of folks that kind of got lost along the way, some, some well-meaning group that needs help from some divine source. This is his people, his covenant people. You remember those infamous words from the book of Exodus when he goes and says to Moses, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant relationship. It's a relationship that's always for the other. A relationship that's based on, on an activity between a transaction that has the best interests in, of the other at heart 
and that's the covenant. And yet somehow we see it's been defied. And interesting now that the indictment shifts. Look at verse 3. Here's the reality of God. He doesn't say you've done this and list all the things wrong as you and I are very good at doing to each other. But rather he says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? I mean, come on, God knows exactly what they've done. But here he doesn't offer the negative. He, he doesn't try to nuke them with how bad they are, but rather he affirms what he has done. Remember what I have done for you, my chosen people. Have I wearied you? Well, answer me now. It's not take your time, think about it, have a huddle, have a committee, vote on it. Answer me now. I brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Powerful language of liberation, of exodus, of freedom. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Bela, king of Moab, and Balaam, son of Bor. In spite of them, in spite of that oppression, I delivered you. The reality of God's people is as they are embroiled and living in the swamp of sin and vice and death and oppression and violence, yet they have a God of liberation, freedom, light, and wholeness. What gives? Why the gap, says God. Interesting, then it shifts. The defense stands. The defense doesn't stand, as we see in verse 6, and go, well, I really didn't mean to, or we're sorry, they start to backpedal and scramble for how they can pay what they think is simply a fine. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? You have a glimpse here. It's certainly when you read it in the original language, you say, you almost get a sense, if you will, they're going, ooh, he really is serious this time. This is something more than God being grumpy. He's really going to the very core of our existence. But look at their defense. Shall I come before? Notice the language, shall I come? In other words, what can we do to fix this? God has an indictment, and if you read the previous six chapters of Micah, or five chapters of Micah, what you see is this phenomenal, uh, just, just wasted landscape of a people of God, living in this just wasted landscape of a world, and yet they still think they're going to fix it. Well, burnt offerings, that's what we do. With calves a year old, those are our finest, you know. Will the Lord be pleased with not just ten rams, not a hundred, but thousands of rams. And I love this, ten thousands of rivers of oil. When oil was usually dealt in very small amounts. It's a copious amount that anyone would be grateful to receive. And they ultimately go to the place, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Isn't that a powerful line? The fruits of my body for the sin of my soul. And there it is. The fruit of their life and their experience, of their bodies, of their minds, actually concerns the sin of their soul, the very heart of who they are as a people. A people that professes and loves to call themselves God's people, the chosen one, yet in fact, the sin of their body is actually led to the sin of their soul. But then comes the verdict. The verdict which isn't in fire and brimstone. The verdict which isn't in disenfranchisement or putting them out in expulsion. It rather is simply, here he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, what's happened here is the people of God 
have taken a covenant relationship, a covenant which is special and which is important and for Christians is based in what I'm sure you all know that, that one of the New Testament words, Greek words for love is agape, that total outpouring and self-giving of one to the other, that in this moment, this covenant moment, they've actually transitioned it from covenant to contract. A, a contract is, is where two parties come together and they agree that they need to set boundaries. Don't cross this or else. Don't cross this or else. That's what a contract is. And then you sign on the bottom line. It's simply a personal signature. A covenant, though, is entered by agreement, promise, and vow. It's when two parties come together and do more than simply establish boundaries. They establish the relationship between them. Do you see the difference? To see one can be easily defined. Am I over the boundary yet? Am I... Does anybody have children here? And if you don't, let me tell you about little kids. Son, I have three sons. And I'll say when they were, when they were small, they, they just hate it when they're all in their 20s now. They just hate it when I do this. I'm going to tell it anyway. You, you tell your toddlers, you say, okay, son, I don't want you stepping across the line because you have a habit of stepping across and beating your brother over the head over here. Don't do it. So he comes and he goes, okay, if I step this close, am I over the line? If I put half of my foot, am I over the line? And for anyone who's a parent with toddlers, so heads up, get used to negotiating where the line really is. What's intriguing to me, though, is we as adults do the same thing. We take contractual aspects of our lives and we try to say, well, is the line really that wide? Did I really is that really morally wrong? Is it really that bad? Is, is that really sex or is that something else? Is, is that really breaking a problem or is that something else? Is that, do you really mean it? Does God really mean those things? You see, there's just such a fundamental difference between covenant and contract. And what the people of God had done is they simply transposed it. They took what is precious and life-giving, the covenant, and they transposed it with a contract, which simply tells us how to live. Do this, do this, don't do that. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do this. In other words, we just get into lists and that's how we try to live. And it's impossible, as we all know. So in that moment, though, God reminds them of the covenant. And that's what verse 8 is. That's what the great word is. It's the covenant language reinstated. And it's language, though, that's very, really important. I'm from a tribe, the Anglican Church, that I think sometimes, because of our mainline sort of very liberal Protestant view, we start to assume that verse 8 of chapter 6 is about us. But really, it's about what happens when people have entered a covenant, and in our case, through the cross, sacrifice, blood, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what happens is this is what it looks like. It's not what I do. I can't do justice to justice. I can't love kindness or mercy enough to be merciful. I cannot walk humbly with God because I'm a rebellious, grumpy old man. I, I have my ups and I have my downs. I'm not consistent enough. All those things affect me. So, so to actually fulfill this is only like a New Year's resolution. I mean it on January the 1st, and by January the 4th, it's toast. Because there's no way of keeping it. And very rarely do we hear of those who have kept those self-imposed resolutions. So the danger of this word in verse 8 is that we think it's self-imposed. This is what good Christian or good covenant people do. Rather, this is the outcome. This is the verdict of God. This is what my covenant people will look like, says God. Here's what happens. 
And it's not just any justice. It's doing right. Doing right at all times. So ask yourself the question. Do you do right at all times? I have no doubt that your concern for those who are poor or those who are on the outside, for those who are disenfranchised, those who are oppressed in some way, I, I have no doubt of that. But now let's, sign it, let's dial in a little closer to home. In your heart of hearts, do you, do you really act justly? Do you think justly? Or do you have a problem with gossip or backbiting? or with calling somebody else down, if not verbally, certainly in your mind or your heart. Do you see, to do justice is to do, in fact, is to live justly. It's to live in right relationships with a world that is not right. So that's the first element. A covenant man or woman lives rightly. But secondly, it's not simply about what we do. It's about loving that mercy or that kindness that is required for genuine justice to occur. It's a heart issue. You see, I can be just. I, I can work with organizations that do laudable and good work and, and seek justice. Amnesty International or World Vision or, or our outreach ministries at St. Paul's and abroad. I can do all sorts of good stuff. But if my heart isn't truly aligned with that as a covenant person is called to be, then I have no chance of sustaining it for the long haul. And you see, that's what a covenant is about. It's about the long haul. Because if some of you sitting here have never encountered tragedy or turmoil or, or tough stuff, I can guarantee you, you will. And if you're a contractual person, that will stop you cold and send you south. But living in the covenant gives us an opportunity to walk through the valley of the shadow of death because we know we don't go alone. But you need, you and I need that covenant presence of the Holy Spirit to love mercy so that we can do justice. And then finally, what does that mean? As we walk humbly with our God. Now, that's a lovely Old Testament phrase for simply saying, allow God to shape us and form us and transform us into persons of mercy who are able to do justice. Do you see how it fits? See, all Micah is doing is he's saying, let's tear up the contract and let's live the covenant. And here's what it looks like. Now, think about this. He's speaking into a world that is dark, is broken, has economic meltdowns, has violent meltdowns. In other words, there's not a lot of hope around. <laughs> Nobody else is going to fix it except the people of God, the men and women of God, living rightly with God so that they're able to be transformed and shaped by him as they walk humbly with him, so that they have hearts of mercy, a, a heart of flesh versus a heart of stone, as the prophet says, so that they are able to do justice, to do what is right, regardless of the cost. But we know, we know A.D. 2011, January the whatever, the 25th, that we can't do that simply by good works, good intentions. That by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, his action on the cross, and the ability of the Holy Spirit to take our lives, shape them, and transform them, we can be not simply a people of mercy, but a people of the covenant. My prayer for you is simple. That you will engage with what God is offering 
And what he offers is this phenomenal life of power and of majesty and of glory as you seek together to drain the swamp. Because quite frankly, to work for Jesus in this world is akin to draining the swamp. Have you ever seen that show on television by Mike Rowe called Dirty Jobs? Apparently, accordingly to studies, it's one of the most popular shows on television. He goes into the most strangest places and he does dirty jobs. He cleans out chicken coops, but chicken coops with like 100,000 chickens in them. Or he, he, he you know, drains septic tanks or he just all, all sorts of weird things. But the point is, it's an attractive show. And when they've surveyed watchers of the show, their ultimate reaction is, ooh, and they're strangely attracted and the line always is, I'm glad it's him and not me. See, that's a contractual view of the world. A covenant view says, how can I help you drain the swamp? How can I help you drain the septic tank? How can I get my hands, feet, and head dirty to do justice? Why? Because I love mercy. Why? Because I am first loved. Many of you are young, certainly compared to me. And if you take nothing else from this talk, I pray it's not simply the great word or anything other than know that you are loved. Because when you encounter life, you will have choices to make. The world will keep telling you it's all about the contract, the boundaries, about whether you're in or out, whether you've checked a box or not. Yet, as people who profess to follow Jesus or who long to do that, perhaps, this is an opportunity to live differently, richly, powerfully, sustainably. It's an opportunity to live and not simply exist. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why the show Survival is, Survivor has had such a long run on television isn't because of its visual drama or its action as a reality show. It's rather because it really summarizes life in the Western world today. What is Survivor? What's the motto? To outwit, outlast, and outplay. We're in a world that says, guess what, folks? You can survive by outwitting, outlasting, and outplaying the other. A covenant person says, no, I can simply do justice because I love mercy, because I'm seeking to walk humbly with my God. Let's bow our heads, and let's pray that that may be so. Living God, I pray that you will bless this community, that you will watch over them, encourage them, challenge them, shape them, love them, convict them, move them, frustrate them, elevate them, shape them in ways of the mind and of the heart. May they use their gifts and resources that you have blessed them with, whether it be the incredible music we've experienced today, the brilliance of their teachers and professors, the, the ability to put cogent thoughts together as they seek to further your kingdom, whatever endeavor they've chosen. But living God, at the very core, I pray that you will bless them with an understanding that they are or can be called to be a covenant man or a covenant woman. That in their deep and profound relationship with you, shaped by your Holy Spirit, they will walk humbly with you and be shaped by you. And in that, their hearts will be overflowing with mercy and kindness towards the other. 
as they seek to do justice, not only in the big stuff, but also every small detail of life. And so now, Father, I ask you to bless these fine people gathered here today. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst you and remain with you now and forever. Amen.